Dan, I just want to say welcome to the show. I have been looking forward to this literally for months. Like, <laughs> it has been months. <laughs> no exaggeration and well worth the wait. And I know who you are. You definitely know who you are. But for someone who's listening in who has no idea who you are and what you do, how would you describe yourself? Oh, man. Um, you know, these days, probably the easiest blanket term is just the marketing strategist for companies that sell direct to consumer. Uh, my real pedigree and really where I spend a lot of time is still in copywriting. But typically when I'm taking projects now, I'm either bringing another copywriter with me and I'm sort of overseeing the whole process, coming up with the big ideas and then really over the finish line. Or in a lot of cases, uh, that's almost the back end, right? The copywriting is really the last part of the puzzle. And as you and I were just talking about offline, there's a lot of stuff that goes on before we really start executing funnel or sales page or copy or things like that. We get deep into helping them with the offer, helping them create product, looking at product portfolio level, and then all sorts of other things. Where's the traffic coming from? What's the competency of the traffic buyers? There's a lot of spend going also back end being managed, email management, all of that. So yeah, that's kind of, I started in a little bit of a, I wouldn't say a pigeonhole, but a much smaller world of service and providing pretty much copywriting. And that has just over the last, I guess I've been doing this for 10 years now. So, you know, you're bound to evolve a little bit and that evolution has kind of taken me into larger pieces of the direct marketing puzzle, but ultimately I'm very good at copywriting. It's probably still my best talent. It's just a power call it. So inevitably it leads me in that direction. And that's what I enjoy is taking all that stuff at the beginning and then watching it turn into this one deliverable or piece of writing. Yeah. I really love that process. And so I kind of built my career around being able to get involved in the whole thing so to nuts. You know, <laughs> love, I, I do so, so there's, there's so many levels uh, to what's happening inside of my mind right now. And I'll just, I'll just reveal it for people who are listening in context that it would be impossible for, for, for you to have is that Dan and I go way back. And the way that I used to introduce Dan was he was responsible for 60% a front-end acquisition for The Motley Fool, which is a nine-figure direct response-driven, you know, uh, company. Um, but that was way back when he was actually here in D.C. before we also went up to, uh, gosh, where did we go up to in Baltimore again? Where is it? We did, like, the mini road trip. It was to, um, gosh, I'm, uh, ooh, ooh. Also a direct response uh, company. Um... Uh, to Agora. Yeah, yeah. Yes, to Agora. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. yeah. We went yeah. to Agora Financial. Yeah. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, fun fun road trip. Uh, yeah, man. Well, that is a, a while back. <laughs> 2014 yeah. or something like that. Yeah, yeah. It's 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 also, so I think we first met in person at Titans of Direct Response. Um, 
and then ran into each other like going to the same gym uh fun days yeah so like, it's just random how the worlds just kind of collide that way uh but the what you've done since then uh like you mentioned with just like the expansion you know to 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 marketing and uh, touching you know funnels and offers and everything for the person that's listening in they're generally trying to go from uh, uh one-on-one marketing uh sales and delivery uh to one-to-many marketing uh -huh. sales and delivery which is something that you have a lot of deep expertise in and something that we spoke about before we started recording which i thought would be an excellent topic to dive into is i think you described it as product driven marketing yes could you tell us more about that yeah um you know i think one of the primary questions that goes through my head when someone's really trying to grow their scale is are you going to sort of start with a bottoms-up approach or a top-down approach in terms of price point, right? A sufficiently mature business is eventually going to probably both or at least flavors of both. But someone who's going from that one-to-one -one model and wants to scale online, there's a real early question, which is, almost driven by how they want to deliver their service, right? So someone who's doing one-to-one -one is very used to having a very intimate relationship for lack of a better way to describe it. Because when you are in those, those contexts, like you're working very close with someone, you get to know them very well. So someone like that, there is sometimes this desire to still be involved in that level but obviously your time is limited and that's where some of these packaged coaching or higher ticket things where maybe you go from one to five people that you can handle at once or from one to 20 but there's still going to be this level of touch point that they're involved with mm -hmm. not every client individually probably but at least groups of them or cohorts of them and there's going to be some interaction so that's kind of the typical way that you see people do it. And I think that that's the reason why is it's just a little bit closer to the comfort zone of what they've done. And then how are people taking that product and building the marketing around it? That's where we see webinar funnels, book a call funnels, things like that. But the opposite side of that is you can create something that's more appropriate for many more people and very hands-off in sort of the Ascension model type thing and so that's where when I say product driven marketing there's a lot of things that go into that but one of the primary ones is just like I said eventually you're probably going to have both so it's kind of like where do you want to start and then how do you mm -hmm. take all of that expertise that you've built on that one-to-one -one level of service and make it appropriate for whatever the price point you're at is if you're charging high prices still obviously you need a pretty robust package if you're going to be in a sub $100 offer or sub $50 offer, then it's about sort of splintering off little pieces of what you do or splintering out what's the first domino somebody has to get through or what's the first problem that they're dealing with. And so it tends to take a little bit of a smaller, perhaps tighter set of outcomes that you're trying to get somebody with 
as opposed to those higher level, higher ticket programs are a little bit more comprehensive. Um, so yeah, I mean, there's just so many considerations, but there's no right or wrong way to do it. It all works at the end if you do it right. I really love that because it's also just in line uh, with, you know, adding value at every single step of the way. You know, it's like when it comes to like lead magnets and uh, front end offers and things like that, you know, it doesn't have to be something that's fluff. You know, uh, Alex Hormozzi, for instance, like this month, he's doing this huge problem around, you know, $100 million leads. You know, yeah. and, and, had, and he's, 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 he's walking the talk and <laughs> he's like, here's a lost chapter of the book that you, you can't get unless you sign up for this thing. And we're going to be, you know, and he's just like reinforcing, uh, the giving, uh, of value, you know, and then also just even with his YouTube channel, just like giving away all this free content and free courses and just like, just, just stacking the free, you know, so yeah. by the time somebody like, you know, engages with him, it's like this super qualified inbound lead. You know, I'm imagining. Yeah. Um, you know, an interesting thing about what you're talking about there that is applicable to somebody who's not on Hormozzi's level is just awareness of what the business model is drives what you're offering, right? So Hormozzi is a great example because the business model is all about essentially taking stakes of that kind of top 5% of people who come into his world that have very highly effective businesses already and want to level up. And so they come in and they give them all the equity or they take equity in exchange for helping those business grow. So he can do what he's doing with this massive lead gen campaign because he knows hmm. I'll make this up, but whatever, if I get a hundred thousand, a thousand of those are going to be qualified to the type of customer that we want work with and then you know 50 of those will become portfolio companies or whatever the numbers are but mm. there is that view of understanding what really the profit centers of that business are going to be and how to make it work and that's mm. a whole other consideration that we could tie back to what we are just talking about is is it a business that's going to be built on volume is it a business that's going to be built on the thicker margins on a smaller scale and you can start to build the products, the offers, even the free stuff in Ormosi's case around that. And again, that dictates the marketing as well. So I give you the profile. Typically, the for many of my past uh, clients, there's like three sub-segments uh, that we've been able to identify based on like the past uh, 20 clients or so that we've worked with. Uh, but uh, generally speaking, average contract value uh, or lifetime value of their clients uh, somewhere between like 50k to like 200k usually okay. on some kind of like consulting offer sometimes the consulting offer is already productized sometimes it's not they're thinking to themselves like oh man maybe i'm not going to do the low ticket online course thing because that seems to be at odds with what it is that I'm providing on this uh, super high end here. So maybe I do a medium ticket course or maybe I do a, a higher ticket uh, course or something like that, which for my clients might seem almost reasonable in comparison to the price point that they usually have to pay to work with me one-on-one. -on -one. Yeah. So if I'm putting all these pieces together in my head right now. So suppose you have a 
customer who their average client value is 25K. Mm-hmm. The first question that I'm asking in that regard is sort of what is the fulfillment of that 25K customer look like? How many of them can be consumed at any given time? And then we can start, to your point, building either above that or below that, right? So a very simple example is if I have the ability to fulfill 30 clients at any given 25K, I start asking myself, do any of them want to pay 100K? Mm-hmm. Or would any of them in a service where I'm working with other businesses, for example, would any of them have the desire or the need to bring me in as an equity advisor, whatever that may look like, or to an even higher level of one-to-one? Like it's almost going back to the beginning, right? Is mm-hmm. you have in this example, what did I say? 30 clients at 25K. I might be looking for those three or four that are worth three or four times that much or even more than that. But then to the other direction, 25K is a lot of money, right? And so we start to look at that market and say, what's sort of the next reasonable price tier down? Maybe it's 10K. And then at 10K, you can start to automate things a lot more. So at that 25K tier, there's still quite a bit of what I would call like human-driven fulfillment, right? Which is very hard to scale. You can only, even in a group context, like eventually if it's 30 people, if you brought that up to 40, now each of those people is theoretically getting a third less attention than they would have. So there are all these constraints in terms of the the manpower or the humans, but what I might do is look at what am I delivering at 25K? Is it still a valuable package if I remove part or all of the human delivery L, right? Mm. And just give them, say, the best the best $10,000 course that they could get. And then perhaps instead of, let's say, at the 25K level, they have whatever, five hours a week of some sort of guidance or coaching or, you know, hands-on help. Maybe that goes mm-hmm. down to one hour a week. Mm-hmm. You know, there's there's all sorts of ways to slice that thing, but what I'm doing right now is just the same process that I would go through with one of those clients is start asking them questions to figure out what's the people requirement, what's the process required, and then how do all those things fit together. It sounds really simple and it almost is. It's just asking the questions to figure out like, well, where are the bottlenecks or where are the places where we can expand? How could we deliver value without that or how can we deliver it that day or a bunch of people or things together, right? It's just kind mm-hmm. of this, you're just taking little pieces. Every business has their own individual set of pieces, but they all are kind of the same at the end of the day. You know, there's not going to be that much variation in how all of the little things fit together that even in broadly you know vast vastly different types of markets or services being provided once they're in that packaged environment you can start to really just tinker with all the little variables to figure out what's the best way to go up or down right Mm. there's a tiny slither of what you shared that i almost want to like take like just 
like magnify uh, in on there, uh, which is uh, the the taking apart and figuring out like what's the thing in this 25k scenario uh what's the thing that they might be willing to pay uh, a 10k for uh and then how much of like the human delivery uh component could you remove uh and on spoken a uh, part of that is whether or not uh they are paying 10k for more of the outcome versus more of the experience that's a very good point so i think that what you're alluding to there is actually just one of the the truths to this type of strategy and it just kind of so happened that the price points that we were using almost tend to be true to what you're saying is that at a lower price point it really is outcome driven and a low price point is relative. But like I said, these numbers are almost spot on in my experience is if you're at a 5k level, even a 10k level, depending on sort of the affluence or the money to burn the market has, it really can be all outcome driven. Just get me to this point. As you start to climb, the ladder in terms of the level of coaching or high high ticket mastermind or whatever it might be there's all these other things that don't necessarily have an outcome orientation to them that start to get thrown into to your point experiences you know that's where some of these live events start to get thrown in oh for 50k twice a year not only do you get all the weekly stuff that we do digitally but we're going to have a free day event so there's sort of a friendship element to it there's a go on adventures level of element to it and then there's status pieces to that too which is i get to interact and be in the same room with people that are also at that level um so it's a very keen insight that we tend as marketers to think very much just around the outcome or some sort of defined outcome but if you broaden your definition of outcome to not necessarily be something that has an endpoint, you start to consider all these other benefits that you're pointing to that really are kind of the hallmark of great product development and thinking through product appeals and benefits and doing what we're saying, which is if you can build this product before you ever think about the marketing that makes the job of the marketing so much easier because to the point or the example that we're talking about right now, sure, there might be that defined outcome that we're talking about as being, you know, sort of that concrete thing. But then there's all that abstract stuff or more of the things that like the journey along the way that start to become very good selling points as well, particularly if you're still copywriter and you have to execute them in a way that almost makes them, you know, have the same appeal as that ultimate solution or outcome that the person is looking for. Uh, and then, you know, one of the other things to think about is, like I said, at lower price points, you do tend to focus on that discrete outcome. But there's so many ways that even, say, a fully virtual product 
can start to give people some of those other intangible benefits. And when we're doing product development or offer development, even on a very low ticket thing, that's a place where I spend a lot of my time thinking about what else is this person getting other than whatever they're actually looking for, whatever is the main marketable piece of that offer. What's just understanding your audience, you know? (laughs) 1000%. It, it made me think of this question, which is what are some of those intangible elements that you start to think about, uh, when you're constructing offers? Well, of course, that's very dependent on the market and the offer and what's being sold. But I think there are just, you could even, or we could challenge ourselves right now to sort of think about even just on a human level, what are people after? And then you take those core things. I mentioned a couple earlier, right? Like status or connection or experience. And you think about, there's probably not that many of these higher level labels that you could put on those outcomes and then the real trick or where marketers make their money i suppose you can say is you take those higher level basic universal appeals that everyone has and you figure out how do you get that into something that fits very tightly with my brand with my offer with my audience with what i want to deliver with what they want to receive you know it's the same thing i said earlier there's all these pieces that play but when you understand the simple fundamentals of there is a very limited well not very limited but there is a limited things that most humans want Mm. and then we start to think about how does that filter down into the individual context of this business this offer so on and so forth Mm. to borrow a phrase uh, from uh, one of my mentors uh, Ramit uh, Sethi I'm curious about taking this from the cloud to the street. And it's like, how do we then go from this abstract concept of status? You know, it's like, okay, I'm going to buy an Audi, you know, uh, and there's, of course, some status attached to that, but nowhere in the marketing and sales copy does it say buy an Audi, get status, but we know it and we feel it. And it is obviously driving uh, driving motivating factor uh, in purchasing. Like, how are they even doing that? Yeah. So, hey, you're reminding me of a very good book, which I think anyone should read if they're sort of thinking about how to translate these, what you might even call base level human desires into marketing. And it's called Spent by hmm. Dr. Jeffrey Miller, who I believe is an evolutionary biologist or psychologist he's an evolutionary guy and he talks about how status is one of them you know from an evolutionary perspective humans aren't after all that much status sexual reproduction survival and really all of those point to reproduction that's like the Mm. right when you hear about sneaky dna like that's the mandate of our DNA is to just create more piece of itself. But in any case, he takes all these examples of I was that really basic level understanding of what humans after applied in the marketing, right? And he even gives examples of 
high end cars where, you know, if you're selling a high car, to your point, you're not going to say, here's how you get status or here's how you get more dates, right? <laughs> but in a typical brand advertising world, that's where you would see the Audi with probably a driver who is in what they know is the core of their demographics. Let's just call it an older guy in his 50s, right? And then where is that car? Well, it might be parked in front of a high-end restaurant in a nice part of town, right? That's how you start to show its status. Or it might have a beautiful woman in the passenger seat. That's how you show the sex appeal piece of it. Mm. So that may not answer your question exactly, but I had to mention that book because it is a very thorough treatment of the type of question that you're asking. In a more copy-driven world, right, where I'm living, working, take what I just said around pictures and you think about ways that you would say something like that. Imagine pulling your Audi to the nicest restaurant in town and the head's turning because they hadn't seen a car like that ever before because they know that that's one of the rare bars on the street. Right, like you start to get to these places where maybe you take the person halfway there and you let them fill in the blanks. Hmm especially on these very unspoken things. So I would say that you did answer the question because as soon as you <laughs> gave the example, uh, the strategy that my mind pulled out of it was show, don't tell. Oh, absolutely. I mean, this is marketing. Yeah. Yeah. It, and then it got me thinking about uh, Gary Bensavinga and I think it's like the 13 like proof elements or so and like one of them is the demonstration which which is always the most powerful yeah it's like show you know don't tell you know and I think there was this I forget um, like which ad it was but some guy to demonstrate just like the power of elevators like he jumped up and down in like the elevator and stuff himself to see to show the crowd like hey listen I'm not dying you know and elevators work <laughs> you should yeah. install them in your building I, I think I've I think I've heard that story <laughs> and you know you always you always see stuff like this I saw something on social media the other day where it's a guy that he's the CEO of a company that produces bulletproof windshields mm. well what do you think he did he got in a car that had the bulletproof windshield and someone just started unloading on it. That's confidence in your product. That's a demonstration of how effective that product is. And it's, we're laughing at it, but imagine the difference in that demonstration versus, oh yeah, we use this whatever carbon fiber technology to make our windshields more durable than our competitors. They'll withstand 10 times the force or something like that. Like, sure, you can say all that stuff, but then you say, here, that's all mumbo jumbo. Just to show you how precise it is, let me just give you the actual example of what all of that means in the real world. Uh, I think that's fantastic. And let's uh, just to, you know, for 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 funsies, uh, what do we thought about something within the service-based, you know, industry? Typically, services that are being delivered online, and so digital feeling a little bit intangible. How do we then show? Don't tell. So there's a few ways to answer that question, right? Um, let's let's make up an example. Let's say it's a 
mental mindset performance curve or something like that. Detail is, oh, here, I have this system, the ABC rewire system that can remove all of your doubts around growing your own business or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. You have to say something like that. I mean, it does cohere the message. It does give a tangible thought in my head of what I can start to do. But what we're talking about demonstration as a source of proof or showing and not telling is really how do you take someone from knowing what the claim you're making is to believing the claim that you're making, right? And believing not only that you're making a true claim, but it's a true claim that they themselves will be able to work through because there's sort of that two-layer piece of making any claim, which is it works, but it also works for me as the individual, right? Yeah. So there's a whole other set of um, objections there. But anyway, so we have this ABC methodology for rewiring someone's entrepreneurial brain. When I start to ask myself, what's the show and not the tell, or how do I prove this thing? This is a little bit of a trope, but the ultimate form of showing and not telling is storytelling, which <laughs> actually does have a little bit. Now that I say it's not a tell, I'm used to storytelling. It's funny. But yeah. it serves as a way of demonstrating, in most cases, the origin of where something came from or how it came to be or how it came to be refined or who it's been used on with success so far. So that's a more powerful version of I've used this on 500 clients and they've all experienced massive income growth of 50% or more. Again, you make the claim, but then for me to go from hearing that claim to me believing that claim, I'm going to require a little bit more. And that's where a case study can come in. That's where a personal story can come in. That's where maybe if it's a cohort type thing, you say, for example, in our last cohort, we brought in 10 different people, and then you might tell the individual stories around that. Hmm. The other way to provide some of that proof in a let in-your-face manner is with more quantitative type presentations of the information. So in that example, we brought in 10 people in our cohort. This is where instead of just saying this is the ABC approach to rewiring your brain, you start to get to much more concrete demonstrations of what that can provide, right? So in our last cohort of 10 people, the average starting salary was a hundred grand. By the time we finished the 12 weeks together, everyone had reported that they were on pace to make an average of 135 grand. Now we can say we're averaging 35% income improvements over the course of 12 weeks or whatever. And of course, there's a lot of, you know, three three-letter agency type stuff with the FTC that if you're really at scale making those types of claims, you really do have to be able to verify it. Through that example cohort, you know, you'd want documentation and all that. But, you know, some of that 
stuff aside, it really is putting the work in to understand what you provide, to understand what outcomes you can get people to in that example, right? To having even the processes in place to say, okay, this was the start level of our cohort. This is where they were at the end. So some of it is almost even process driven to just pieces to be able to then create the next level of the marketing or the next iteration of the marketing. Uh, but yeah, I think to fully answer the question, when I think about demonstrations for things that don't have the you know, shamwow demonstration, yeah. the more intangible stuff, it really does come down to storytelling and finding those concrete examples of either how the outcome is being served or what's within the process that delivers the outcome. So for that ABC example, how does it work? Where does that come from? What are the pieces of that? To play devil's advocate on behalf of somebody oh, yeah. listening in, <laughs> uh, I can hear somebody saying things like, ah, yes, I can quantify, you know, the value, you know, that I provide. And even if they can't, it's, it's pretty, it's pretty straightforward as far as like how to map that out. But what comes up uh, semi-frequently is I don't want to be known for just this technical thing in whichever area, whether it's project management, whether it's WordPress development, whatever the like raw technical skill, I want to be known for more than that. I want to be known for uh, helping people, you know, like change people's lives. And so I want a message on these deeper benefits that I am willing and able to provide, but I don't want to get boxed in to like just the technical yeah. stuff. Like how do I begin to figure that out? Well, you know, there's a time and place for everything, right? Um, and that's really where I ask, I start to ask myself, not can I make this claim or can I make this appeal to your point of something that maybe gets a little bit more abstract or not as hard data driven as you're saying, right? So I don't ask myself, can I make that claim? I say, when can I make that claim? Mm. And there's a whole bunch of opportunities and possibilities that come up when you ask it in that way. And then the answer to that question doesn't necessarily have to be in some minute interaction, right? This is where, as I've said already, I start to ask questions and I look at the context and all the different pieces. How long is the sales cycle? When does that message have to come in within the context of that mm -hmm. sales cycle? If this is a really sort of cold mass market, the reality is, is you probably have one opportunity to make that claim somewhere in your first interaction. Mm, but yeah. if it's not the primary thing that's going to get somebody's attention or that's going to drive them to engage with you, you can't really lead with it, right? It's got to be after there's some investment and some engagement on their part because then you have the more time and investment somebody gives you even on the first interaction they've ever had with your marketing as that is happening, they're becoming more and more open to hearing more things from you. And so if it's not something that's really going to hook them or grab them initially, I might 
state it until after I've already described all of the main outcomes that they're thinking about, right? But then in the other example, you're dealing with, to go back to the 25K example, if you're dealing with somebody who's going to give you 25K, your sales cycle is probably going to be sufficient, sufficiently longer than one interaction. They might be looking at social media. They might be on your email list. They might see ads from you. And then you have more opportunity to sort of plant that seed, let them think about it, and then take it over the finish line later, right? And so it really is that question of not just, can I make this claim? Yeah, you have to ask yourself that because I'm sure there's answers that will be negative, right? I cannot make that claim for this reason, that reason, or the other. But once you get to something that's like, okay, this is true. This is something that I can't actually claim about what I'm delivering. It becomes much more of a question of when can I make that claim? What's the most appropriate time? At what what do I need to say beforehand, if anything, to even make it appealing to them? Mm -hmm. And ultimately, you'll find that if you start someone kind of on that very discrete pain point or the number one thing that they're looking for, and you you can convince them that that problem will be handled by working with you, everything else all these other levels of claims, the next set of claims and second, third level of claims, they become even more powerful because if I can get somebody to say, right, we go back to that, what's that first problem that they want to solve? Yeah. And I say, here's the price point. You're going to solve that problem for this price point. Everything above that is now essentially a free bonus, right? It's value on top of what they already had determined to be a good exchange of money. And so that ultimately, and when I look at the execution of these things and some of these claims that aren't so tightly connected, what I will look for is I want to get them to the place where they say, yes, I'm in at that price point for that particular thing. And then all this other stuff it's just gravy on top. It's making them say like, this is a no brainer to give that much money and get that much outcome and be done. That's do it because I thought it was good at that first level. Right. So it's all margin in their mind. Mm -hmm. This here's what my mind turns this into sequencing the customer client journey, then deciding what touch points in there, whether it's a one-year uh, customer journey or two-year customer journey, because uh, many uh, service providers uh, tend to have these uh, long-term uh, contracts and relationships that go on for two, even four years. Uh, uh -huh. And then, you know, it might be a lot of work, but if you mapped that out, it would then make it easier to decide when to slot in these different claims. And then it also that brings up a conversation again, you know, just around, you know, uh, just the sequence of the offer suite. Uh, it's a concept that at least uh, within my own trainings and stuff, I instead of calling it the offer suite, the offer journey, so that we can then mm -hmm. decide the sequence uh, with which you know people then engage with products uh, and service offers. But the beautiful thing here is then like just layering in, you know, um, all of these yeah, and, I mean, and promises. To tie in what we were talking about earlier to what you just talked about, right, is sometimes this next level of claim on one of these very journeys 
it may be saved for the next price point up. <laughs> and that may be the appropriate time to say it, right? So if we're at that 25K level and we have a 100K offer, there may be a whole set of things that we want to promise somebody that it's not appropriate to promise them until they're in that 25K level. They understand what we're doing on a deeper level. They want to go deeper. Perhaps the things that they want have expanded. And then to your point, that's where you start to say, okay, so what's the appropriate time to put that claim or that offer in front of them in the context of this one or two year, say 25K journey that they're on? Yeah, that's cool because for a lot of my folks, it's essentially they're in the world of transforming somebody's life. Mm -hmm. you know, they're wanting to have some kind of intimacy uh, in uh, the product slash service experience. Uh, hence the uh, one phrase that has landed well for uh, our uh, client base is scale, you know, the impact, you know, of your one-on-one -on -one work without losing the impact, you know, of the one-on-one work. And so then the implication there being that, you know, the quality of the outcomes and experience is really important to them. Something, this is going to be a bit of a topic jump, a bit of a context switch for you. No, no problem. That's I like it. So something that people may have no context on whatsoever is your avid surfing for how many years now? Um, I guess probably 10-ish is and pretty accurate way to think about it. I mean, I moved to Hawaii 11 years ago and then there was that period where I was back on the East Coast when we met. And so then I've been back out here about six or seven years. So the last six or seven years, very seriously, really kind of like building my life around it, which is why it took months for us to get on this call because I was in El Salvador. Not the greatest connection. <laughs> um, but yeah, yeah, probably anywhere from six to 10 years, an acceptable answer to that question. What, if any, uh, ways has surfing influenced uh, your understanding of your own behavior and human behavior as it applies to marketing and sales? Ooh, very interesting. Well, I'll start with the first part of the question yeah. as it applies to just myself. Um, there's this very interesting phenomenon, which is if I really and building my schedule around maximizing the amount of time that I can be in the water. And I keep pointing that way because the ocean is literally right there. <laughs> I'm tempted to take a look and see what's going on. But anyway, um, the more that I, basically the more time that I spend in the water, you would think that that would say, okay, you're going to get less done professionally or whatever, right? In any other part of your life, because there's only so many hours in the day, you're spending that many of them in the water and these other things. What it has really forced me to do is set very strong priorities in my life around okay, if I do have that dedication of that much time every week, and I have all these other things that I want to get done, or I think I want to get done, where do things start to fall apart? And so one of the reasons why it's like these things I think I want to get done is because I have to sort of look at them and say, 
okay, like the bottom half of all those things, they're just not going to get done. They're not that important. And that's hard. Um, I, I won't sugarcoat that one. Like it's very hard to sort of push things that you think are important or appealing or interesting to the side, but it's got to be done if you really are committed to something and any parent probably i don't have children but i'm sure any parent understands this much more than i ever will until i do have children but the other thing that i wanted to bring up in that context is in a very specific prioritizing my work or the amount of that i can do or get done it's very counterintuitive but the more time i spend in the water the better results I'm getting for myself professionally because of that process of saying, okay, I only have this many hours remaining. If I'm going to go surf for three hours, then I don't have that portion of my day to be twiddling my thumbs or doing things that don't move the needle. And so this is a huge focuser for me mm. to get me working on this stuff and building projects, and the relationships that are going to be the most lucrative in that professional example. And you could take that and apply it to all the other places of my life. Like how does that apply to friends? You know, it's, it's not comfortable to think about that, but there's friends that probably I only have time for if I'm not surfing. And then there's friends that are important enough that I would make time for them, even if I was surfing. And that's mm -hmm. the same thing with projects, with other hobbies, all that stuff. Um, so that's the first part of the question. You asked me, what has it taught me about human behavior? And that is a much more interesting thought exercise for me to go through. Um, surfing is a very interesting way to interact with other humans because when you're in the water, it can be very competitive. You know, you tend to be kind of packed around one small area. One person gets on a wave and it, you sort of break those rules, it can get very tense because there's safety elements involved and people don't want to get hurt, but they also don't want to have their good time ruined by someone who doesn't follow the rules, which are sort of unwritten, but they are kind of written. And so there is a little bit of tension, but there's also good vibes going on. But then as soon as you're on the parking lot, everyone's the, the most friendly person you've ever seen. So it, it's mm. kind of this demonstration of like, self-interest is always at play community is always at play and then you know once the barrier to those things goes away people sort of shift gears a little bit uh, yeah it's a it's a very interesting observation of how people relate to their surfing or here's another example is you can kind of tell when there are people who are surfing from the joy of it versus people who are using it to sort of escape from other parts of their life. Because surfing really is a great way to escape if you want to because you don't have to talk to anyone. You can be physically isolated from other people if you want. You don't have a phone on you, so you're not constantly. There is a little bit of this kind of release because there's no technology. Um, so yeah, you can sort of, even myself, right? I'm not saying like I only do one or the other, but tell oh i'm having a long day or i'm having something going on here that i don't want to deal with so i'm just gonna go this first hmm. versus oh it looks really fun right now and i'm gonna surf just because it looks fun hmm. um so i don't know where the marketing lesson in all of that is 
but it certainly teaches you something about the way that human beings operate, I think. Well, so so I think this is beautiful. Um, I, I, I love this tangent. I'm going to bring it all back around because that surfing uh, description you just gave made me think about tango, you know, which I've done now for, I think, like seven years or so. And uh-huh. one thing that I think I'd come up with about like halfway into the tango journey is like, seemed to be like I could run into two kinds of dancers. Uh, people who dance to feel free and people who dance to connect. Mm-hmm. It's usually somewhere on one of the ends of the spectrum. Really, do you have someone that's like, you know, smack in the middle? And one's not necessarily wrong, but the intention uh, can be felt. Uh, in the dance, because if your intention is to connect with your partner, you will feel that lack of connection, or at least that lack of desire to connect uh, coming back from mm-hmm. them. Uh, versus two people who are dancing to be free, they will like be almost exuberant in their expression. You know, it's like show performance. You know, because it's like oh, someone that gets what, what we're doing here. <laughs> and the, so are you, I suppose that the you almost require the two people to be in the same space that it helps because yeah. otherwise there's uh you can there's there's a disconnection or conflict uh in the dance they're not going to hear the music the same and so then they're also that even what their choice is to accentuate what and how they do that is going to change depending on whether or not it's like uh oh i'm going to be free you know there, there's less of a focus on the partner and, uh, you know, uh, more of a focus on, on self and the articulation of the movement mm-hmm. and how it looks and then uh, how that then also makes them feel. And then they walk away from the dance feeling charged up and, you know, uh, expressed and uh, ready to take on the next day versus, you gotcha. know, maybe you could almost even, if we were to break it down on like a chemical level, maybe it's a little bit more of like dopamine versus uh, serotonin and oxytocin. Uh-huh. As far as like yeah. what <laughs> chemical compounds that we're looking for uh, in the dance. And to tie that now back to uh, marketing and sales, understanding on a deeper level uh, what someone is, what need someone is yep. trying. That's to- exactly what I was thinking as you were talking there is like, if you have one offer in this case, say a tango class, what is the appeal that brings in the widest level of people, right? So then if we're actually working through this as a tango school trying to figure out their marketing, you could do surveys or you could do some sort of questionnaire and try to deduce of your current customers or your current best customers, where do they fall on that spectrum? And that's where it becomes a level of tact in getting that information because you're probably not going to ask those questions outright, right? I mean, maybe you would, maybe rating them, and there's might be some other red herrings in there and not giving it away. But yeah, that's a wonderful example of where are some of these deeper appeals, right? With the Tango School, the primary appeal or the first level appeal is like you're going to get good at dancing Tango. And that's going to do all these wonderful things for you. You're going to have fun. You're going to get in better shape, right? You're going to move better. You're going to be healthier. You're going to meet interesting people. But then what's the level under that? And when do you make that appeal 
at what level of sort of on the nose do you take it for them? Yeah, I mean, it's all, that's just, I'm so glad you brought that up because it's just, you know, it's a, it's a, a demonstration of how this stuff applies really no matter what you're trying to offer somebody or what somebody's going to buy mm, and figure out what they really want. To, to, to go even deeper on this, right, to make it uh, even more concrete, if we were to come up with a product name and subtitle, you know, for the Tango School, or it could be an information product or whatever the a product slash service offering is, do we layer in these deeper desires? Do we do we message on like like the Tango first, uh, uh, or do we show don't tell on these aspects? Well, again, this is where I start to ask: Where is this product sort of in the life cycle of somebody's interactions with you? Is it their first interaction with you? Their first purchase with you? Have they bought something with you? Is it somebody who is already sort of tango bought in? Or is it somebody that you're maybe they want a dance bought in and you're trying to convince them why tango's the one that they should do? Or maybe they're only looking for physical hobby to undertake some sort of hobby they can do with other people and they're not sure if they want to take up dance martial arts whatever mm -hmm. right and so the 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 objectives of the campaign combined with what are the, what is the offer ultimately starts to lead us towards how we can answer that question mm. i love this here's what my mind does with it to contextualize <laughs> it for uh, someone that's listening in that may not be as far along as you are on the marketing and sales journey it's like you've got these if you were going to go on to facebook and try to run a facebook ad right now facebook's going to ask you hey do you want to target awareness consideration or conversion you know and then it's like in the awareness stage someone's like ah oh, gosh i have a problem i'm bored therefore ah hmm how could I not be bored? Then they go into, you know, the consideration stage and it's like, all right, what are ways for me to not be bored? These are the solution options. And, you know, you could dance, you know, but then if we want to get down to like the conversion, it's like, okay, now we need to choose one kind of dance, like tango, <laughs> like zone it, uh, undecided. Yeah. yeah. And so it's, 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 it's always clarifying for me, at least when I like try to chop it up <laughs> into you know the, the the customer journey and figure out yeah where where along that journey that they are organically on themselves mm. where is your marketing going to touch them yeah and sometimes you don't have control over that sometimes you do but conceptually you can start to think about well that's the person that i want to get mm. but that's the person that's going to move our company to the next level and then you can start to say, okay, if I know that that's the person I need and they're at this point in the journey, then here are the things that I have to tell them. If they're over here, further along, or over here, not quite as far along, but things that you're going to tell them are going to change at any given point. If someone wants to say, come out of the, the bucket of thinking about the customer journey and they want to bounce on over to, well, who am I even attracting into uh, the customer journey? What are some of the things you do 
when you're working on campaigns or you're working with, you know, uh, folks within your agency on campaigns to validate that you are targeting the right person. So it has a lot of dependencies on where the business is, right? A younger, a younger, more immature business doesn't have to get it quite as right. Um, because there's less guesswork, I guess, is what I'm saying. So if we go to our example that we've been using, I have a $25,000 course on rewiring someone's entrepreneurial mindset. I tend to have a pretty good idea of who that person is, right? I mean, we could drill even deeper into that and say, okay, what type of entrepreneur is it? How old are they? What business are they involved in? How long are they doing it? Where have they tried? But you still know, okay, this is going to be an entrepreneur who can spend 25K that has probably, to your point, at least the awareness that they've been doing this long enough and they know and they are aware that there's a huge emotional part of growing a business, right? If you're an entrepreneur and you've been doing it for any level of time, you start to be like, okay, like so much of how I'm thinking about things and relating to things is impacting my success. So if you're that business owner, you tend to know who that person is and you can make that offer pretty easily and you can fit the two, the message to that person relatively tightly. But like I said, that's a relatively immature business if that's your only offering, right? And as we've been talking about building out offer suites and product portfolio, if you go up or you go down, then you start to have more importance is placed on getting it right or making assumptions on almost essential operating theories on who the next person is within whatever product that you're going to give them. So let's mm. take a real massive example of that 25K entrepreneurial mindset person and I want to blow up my scale, right? Get a thousand customers a day on Facebook ads. Well, hey, I'm going to be dropping my price point significantly right now. We're in the $100 category. But if we go back to the journey that you were just talking about, we may be dealing with people who aren't even aware, right? Maybe it's an earlier stage entrepreneur who hasn't quite put the pieces together that so much of what their mindset is or their mind games are themselves is impacted. And so then you start to say, oh, well, maybe the best way to drive that level of awareness is with something completely blind, right? But this is just an example right off the top of my head, but it could be like we conducted a survey of 2,000 successful entrepreneurs who do, and then I would name like the type of business that we're trying to get, right? who work with coaches or whatever to grow, to grow their own fear of influence. Here's the seven things that we determined are drivers of success. The first six might be the stuff that we already expect, right? Like they know how to build good systems. They know how to create operations. They're good at sales. And then the seventh one would be something that's more attuned to what we're talking about. Like they've done the work to get their head in the right space to run a business like that. That's an example of how you might go very far 
from who you're typically known to work for, who you're typically um, used to working for. And you say, who's the person that is literally four or five steps earlier in the process? And can we speed them through that process? So instead of it taking them five years and organically five months before they're ready to do the 25K price point, we might be able to speed that up into five weeks and take them, someone who wouldn't have gotten there until 2025 and actually get them there in 2023. That is clear. For the person who's listening in who is just like, oh my God, wow, I'm getting all free value. <laughs> I should be paying for this. But how do I know if I'm fitting the description of mature versus immature business? Are there any qualifiers you could add to that to help someone self-identify? Um, You know, it's not like there's a legitimate litmus test that I would give somebody. But for the most part, I would say it has to do with your scale, right? So if you're typically only working with a dozen of clients, two dozen clients, even up to a hundred clients, you're still at a pretty small scale and you're probably in order for it to be a viable business charging relatively high price points at least a thousand dollars or more. Right. And so when I start to think about scale, this is just reiterating a lot of the things that we've already said, but scale is related to maturity. If I start thinking about myself as wanting to scale, I'm probably not the most mature business. Yes, mature businesses want to scale, but the ability for them to do so because they have, by definition, kind of reached larger and larger pieces of their addressable market of the people who that they who they can serve, their growth is going to be relatively small mm-hmm. on like a percentage rate, right? 10% a year, 15% a year. An immature business, a business that maybe only has one offer or has 100 clients, they can double, they can triple, right? So there's some, some of it is just like, oh, could I double this business? Is there relatively, you know, obvious path towards doing? And I think for a lot of people, there is. And so scale and maturity in my mind tend to be relatively easy to think about in that litmus test. Yeah. Um, and, you know, to your point, a lot of the people that you work with are in a one-to-one context and they're looking to go to one-to-many. They may be very mature businesses in that they may be experts that have been doing the same thing for two decades, three decades. But their knowledge in their offering is very mature, but the scale of their business is actually quite immature. And that's why they're coming to you because they even right. know that. Yep. And so even if we get them from one to one to one to 20, in the grand scheme of what you could do on, for lack of a better word, a distribution standpoint, like how, how far can you distribute your services or your marketing, even if I'm 20x, right? From one client to 20 clients, the ability to go beyond that is pretty self-evident, right? Yep. Um, unless you're in a market that only has 20 people. But I don't think many of your listeners probably fall into that category. That would be correct. You know, wealth <laughs> wealth management for people with $50 billion or more. 
is you know okay now you're you're completely mature at that scale but then maybe you want to go down to 10 billion dollars right um there was another point i was going to make but it seemed to have slipped my mind no worries if it comes back it comes back yeah this might be another bit of a curveball because i'm also wanting i'm also being conscious of uh time uh and If you were stuck on a desert island with one dessert for one week, which dessert would it be? And <laughs> why? Am I able to mix and match them? This is a type of conversation I have my girlfriend all the time. <laughs> like, only choose one. My... Only choose one. You know what? You know what? Yeah. yeah you could, you could mix and match. Really, only two. Where, only two. Where my mind is going is like, well, if it's just one thing, it's probably a brownie. But if I have things and how that brownie is served, you know, there might be some ice cream on top, something like that. <laughs> nice, nice, nice. What about you? I don't want to hear your. Ooh, you know what? No one's ever asked me that back. Oh, fantastic. Um, so if I were stuck, um, I would have to say a vegan cheesecake. Like, okay. That's because I'm lactose intolerant, and so like it, it just, mm. just, just understand this lactose intolerance. And but hey, if you're on, if you're on the island by yourself, that's true. Like, you do have a point. Matter. You do have a point. It might mess up my sleep, but who cares? Like it'll be worth it because the happiness points that I get back from the cheesecake is gonna be worth it. So you know what? Scratch that. No vegan. Uh, just straight cheesecake. <laughs> and I'll you're just there. You might as well indulge. <laughs> I'll scare off the predators. And yeah. <laughs> so, uh, cheesecake, I, I, oh, there's something about it. Um, uh, like strawberry cheesecake, there's gotta oh, be some kind of fruit. You're making me want to change my answer. Now. <laughs> uh, I have to see, it's a very good question for me because I have a crazy sweet. I love dessert. And so, yeah, brownie's kind of the default answer, but I can go through a whole bunch of other <laughs> equally appealing options. So then this next question might be for you. Uh, how's that for a hook? Uh, so that was the easy question. This is oh. really, this, this is just the build up. This is the, was the warm up question too. Our guests have been split on this decision and I'll give you the results of the <laughs> informal survey right after I give you the question uh, and, and you give the answer. If you had to choose between chocolate chip cookie or oatmeal raisin cookie. I'm going to go chocolate chip. All right. So it's like a 20% oatmeal raisin, 80% chocolate chip split. Really right on the 80-20 thing. I didn't make this up. Uh, but there was I mean, one. It's just hard to beat chocolate, man. Like chocolate it's is the king of, it's any good dessert. Well, not any, but a lot of good desserts have some sort of chocolate basis. Yeah, and you know, <laughs> if I'm on a desert island, I don't have to worry about the milk in it. So there you go. Uh, <laughs> a, a bigger, deeper question uh, beyond that, though, is if you could go back in time uh, to before the pandemic, knowing everything that you know now, what advice would you give to yourself professionally, personally? 
Oh, I think, man, that's a, a good one. Professionally, I don't know. I mean, I things have really been pretty good since the pandemic. So I might have just been just like day on tap, right? Mm. Um, but I think I could give you a more detailed answer, which is somewhat unrelated to the pandemic, but just a lesson that I've learned over the last couple of years is really think as I'm doing a lot of eel making for lack of a better word, when I'm in making these consulting packages or building copywriting and something is that there's so much weight on the actual deal. And I spent a lot of time over the last few years kind of learning how people make deals, learning how people negotiate, how they bring different terms in, kind of typical business terms and how equity is given out and things like that. So I probably would have just done that a little bit sooner because mm -hmm. it's a huge lever for the type of work that I do. Yeah. Um, but like I said, unrelated to the pandemic was just something that was kind of a part of my own personal journey um, over the last three, four years. Personally, um, yeah, I I don't know. Like the pandemic was kind of weird living in Hawaii. Um, we went from, I want to say it was something like 30,000 visitors a day down to 300 like a 99 wow. percent reduction in wow. tourism um and it was it was like the best of times and the worst of times you know yeah. because it was very incredible to see this place that's typically very crowded right i live on a which is where all the tourism is it can be very crowded and it was kind of shocking but nice <laughs> the same time to see it relatively quiet to be able to surf without a lot of people or to see the wildlife and the water particularly start to really thrive you know i was seeing seals and rays and stuff that i very rarely see particularly right out here where we have sort of seeing traffic interacting close to the the water um seeing those things on a much more um frequent basis was really quite nice but like I said, it's kind of scary when you see an economy that is thriving on 30,000 visitors a day, more yeah. or less chopped off at the knees. Um, so I don't know if I had any advice for myself in that respect other than just like, you know, try to enjoy this for what it is or find the silver linings in this, which I think I did um, because it's all going <laughs> to, right now, if I sit in traffic, if there's, if I'm out at the wrong time of day, causing all people to go to the same place and then you get frustrated but mm. yeah it's kind of just wake up and smell the roses enjoy what's in front of you i think i said this on another podcast or something during the pandemic but i said you know i think as happy as everyone's gonna be to move beyond it and i certainly was um there's gonna be these little moments of like and a nostalgia around stuff like that we were forced to do um i'll give you one example very early in the pandemic 
uh, my girlfriend got COVID, like OG COVID, right? <laughs> and so we had to quarantine for 14 days, and I never got it. So I was just kind of like, why am I stuck in this apartment <laughs> this whole time? But right, that's what they were having people do early on. And as sort of like frustrating as that was, it was actually kind of fun too. You know, we just spent all of our time together playing Dan watching movies yeah so the, there was a silver lining in it and yeah for different people it may have been way worse than i, I recognize all of that but just i think as a personal what it's life philosophy is i tend to look for that sort of stuff no matter where i am what's going on or how bad things are going yeah, I if my roof collapses. <laughs> <laughs> For folks uh, who are listening it who have no idea about that callback, <laughs> just before uh, uh, this last night, my roof uh, started collapsing because part of my building caught on fire. Uh, but that's so that's this that's the callback inside joke there. <laughs> it's fantastic. So now you just where's the silver lining in that? Right? That's, <laughs> yeah, it's this moment. <laughs> that is true. I love that. Thank you for that. And uh, true, true to, you know, just the nature of marketing sales and really a business optimization. You know, it's it's really about finding the opportunities, the silver linings that, you know, others miss. You know, that's, that's really what a lot of this uh, comes down to. And then just really doubling down and enjoying that and being able to show more of it uh, with others as well. I, I quite like that. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for that, brother. Um, You're welcome. We need to do this again, man. This this is this is fantastic. But officially, thank you uh, for being on the Modern Consultant Podcast. Uh, this has You're been welcome. a joy. Thank you for inviting me. Of course, and we'll clip it there. Um, that was awesome. Thank you for that. Uh, any any yeah. feedback, questions, or anything uh, uh, for me? No, it's great. You have a very good style of asking on-the-spot questions which obviously makes your guests show up and i appreciate that so thank you thank you and you provided excellent uh answers as well it'll probably be about uh three to four weeks uh production timeline with uh folks that we have in the queue and everything but i'll shoot an email i'll let you know once uh, stuff is ready uh and trying to also see if i can start to put together these like little flip packages and stuff for guests so that you could just have it, you know, for your own purposes. Oh, that'd be sick. Oh, we can get to talk about the podcast. All right, we got to do another one. <laughs> we got to do another one. Uh, this has been fantastic, man. And if you ever want to jam, like, you know, off a podcast, I mean, by all means, I'm, you got my phone number. So, yeah. Yeah, of course. All right, brother. Glad you were back. Glad you were safe. Glad you have great internet. And... <laughs> <laughs> You know, if what's funny is we're we're actually having like gale force winds right now. We need to bring our stuff stuff in. Wow. Which we get on occasion, right? Like we well, we typically have trade winds that are twenty knots, fifteen knots, whatever. But every once in a while, a couple times a year, just the way that high pressure and stuff interacts in the Pacific, it'll get to like forty knots, which I think qualifies as gale force winds. So the wind last night and this morning was crazy and I was just like if I lose internet <laughs> this is gonna be the most like Murphy's Law 
sort of thing that could happen with this call. Oh my God. No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, thankfully, uh, you know, it's like I, 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 I used all my powers of focus to be like, all right, contractors, you are knocking on this door. I'm going to pretend like you don't exist right now. <laughs> yeah, I, was, I heard that. <laughs> I, I did my best day in the zone. I appreciate it. I appreciate it. I was like, oh, I told you all. I told you. I told you come back at 2.30 and you're here early. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, but uh, thank you. Thank you for that, brother. Thank um, you. And uh, yeah, uh, I'll be looking forward to more. All right, dude. Sounds good. Right. Take care. Catch you later. All right. Peace. You too. See you, man. Hey, thanks for checking out the show. If you liked it, go ahead and hit the like button and also subscribe so you don't miss another one. It also tells us which ones that you like the most so that we can then do more interviews like that. If you want to go from idea to implementation, though, especially if you're wanting to productize your expertise so that you can scale your impact on your clients and of course grow your business then join our email list there we're going to talk about how modern consultants can productize their expertise so that they can have a greater impact on the world around them and live life on their terms if that's up your alley i hope to see you on the other side talk soon